So I think if there's uh, one period of life that, uh, that everybody is glad when it's over, right? It's got to be junior high school, right? Like middle school. Uh, like nobody ever really looks back on life and says, man, those were the good old days, you know, uh, weren't they? I just want to go back in time all the way back to middle school and relive that because that was amazing, right? Nobody says that. You know why? Because middle school is like the most awkward period of everybody's life. It's the most awkward time of growing up. And I think it's actually quite brilliant on the part of educators that they've created middle schools, because basically what we're doing is we're taking all these kids who are going through that awkward stage of life, and we kind of quarantine them, right? We stick them in their own little building where we can't see them, and, uh, and they can just be awkward together right? Uh, personally, I remember being in junior high school, and, uh, and I was really, at the time, I remember really caring about being cool. It was like my number one goal in life was to be cool and to be accepted. And I was thinking about one story in particular. One day, I, uh, I overheard my classmates talking about this cool new band called Ace of Bass. Anybody heard of Ace of Bass? I was talking to some younger people today and they didn't know who Ace of Base was and then Jeff Robinson was really happy about that. I guess he's been getting that for years now, but uh, I'm getting to that point in life too. So uh, anyway, they're my uh, friends, classmates, they were talking about Ace of Base and I was like, hey, what's, what's Ace of Base? And they were like, you don't know what Ace of Base is? They're only the best band in the whole world. And I was like, oh, oh, yeah, yeah, ace of bass, of course, I just, I just heard you wrong, you know, I just, I didn't hear you correctly, of course, I love ace of bass, everybody who's cool loves ace of bass, they have that one song that we all like, right, and because it's awesome, it's the best, so that night I went home, and I told my parents, I need you to take me to the store, so it took me to the store, and uh, I used the money I saved up, and I brought, I bought a brand new ace of bass CD, and I went home, and I opened it, and I put it in my CD player, and uh, I was not at all expecting what I heard. I was expecting something awesome, something cool, and what I got instead was this, like, techno, Euro, candy, pop music, and I did not like it. But I listened to it anyway. You know that? I did. I listened to it anyway so that I could go back to school and be like, yeah, we all love Ace of Bass. I'm like you guys, right? I wanted to fit in. I wanted to be just like everybody else. Now, thankfully, I outgrew that. I think that a lot of people do after they get out of junior high school. But as a Christian, one thing I've discovered is that one of the great messages of God's word is that God has a higher calling. God has a bigger vision for your life than that you would simply be just like everybody else. And that's exactly what we see the people in our story struggling with today here in 1 Samuel chapter 8. In this story, what we're going to see is two things. Number one, we're going to see the default to being just like everyone else. And number two, we're going to see the desire to be just like everyone else. In the person of Samuel, we're going to see somebody who defaulted to being just like everybody else. He didn't want to be, but he defaulted to it. And in the nation of Israel, we are going to see a people who struggled with the desire to be just like everybody else. But again, God has a greater vision and a bigger plan for your life than that you would simply be just like everyone else. You know, it's been said that any dead fish can go with the flow, but it takes a live one to swim against the current. Any dead fish can go against the flow, but it takes a live one to go against the current. 
The message of the gospel is that Jesus Christ came that we might have life and life abundantly. That we who were dead spiritually because of our transgressions and sins, that we might be made alive in Christ. Jesus Christ came as God to us, God among us, Emmanuel, and he lived an exemplary life and he died a substitutionary death in our place for our sins. And he rose from the dead on the third day so that through him, through faith in him, we who were dead in our sins might become alive through Christ. God's calling and our desire for us is that we would be more than just dead fish who go with the flow. Just going with the flow of society or with culture or what the people around us are doing. Just living and thinking and acting just like everybody else. God's call for our lives is that we would be different. That we would be set apart. That we would stand out from the crowd. That we would be set apart for him. The thing is though that if we're not careful we can easily find ourselves falling into these traps that we see here in 1 Samuel chapter 8. The default to being just like everybody else and the desire, the trappings of being desiring to be just like everybody else. So again, let's begin here with the default to being just like everybody else. The first three verses of 1 Samuel chapter 8 go like this. Now it came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and took bribes and perverted justice. Okay, so for the last several weeks we've been studying through the book of 1 Samuel. What we're doing here on Sunday mornings is we're going through this book verse by verse, chapter by chapter, because what we want is to get the whole message out of this book. We don't want to just pick and choose from random places in the Bible. And when we do that, we ultimately end up picking the things that we like to talk about, right? But if we go through a whole book like this, we're able to get the whole message. We're able to let God just speak to us through it. The title we've given this series is A Heart for God. Because in each of the stories contained here in 1 Samuel, that's the common thread. That's the thing that God wants to teach us about and form in us through this book. Today we come to a part of 1 Samuel that marks a new section in the story. It's a turning point in the story. And even more than that, the events in this chapter mark a turning point in the history of Israel. Um, we're going to see here the transition from what we call the period of the judges to the period of the kings. For more than 400 years, Israel existed as a nation, as a people, in the promised land, without a king, without a centralized government. Uh, from time to time, God would raise up judges who would unite the tribes and lead the nation as a, as a one people in times of crisis. But there was no standing government. There was no standing monarchy, which was handed down from father to son to son to son. Uh, there was no royal family. There was no royal court. And so for 400 years now, this is how the nation has operated. But as you may know, you know, there are people like King David, King Solomon. So eventually we know that in the latter years, Israel did transition into a kingdom and a monarchy. The question is, how did that happen? How did they make that transition from judges to kings? And what does God have to say to us through that story? And that's what we're going to be looking at today here in chapter 8. In the beginning of this book, for the first seven, eight chapters now, we've been looking at, focusing on this man named Samuel. Now Samuel is one of the most godly men in the Bible. 
You know, he's one of these people about whom we really don't read that he ever really turned away from God or, or went on his own path. Uh, we read that he was dedicated to the Lord from birth and that he spent his whole life serving the Lord. As he grew up and got older, uh, God used him in an increasing way. God called him to be a prophet to the nation. Basically, that means that he was like the pastor for the people. He shared God's word with them, called them back to God when they strayed. Later on, God called him to be a judge of the nation, which is that leader that unites the people. And as a judge, Samuel did an incredible job. He turned the nation around. We saw at the beginning of this book that the nation was really in chaos. But Samuel comes and he's a judge and he turns the nation around. And the first thing he does in order to do that is he calls the people to return to God with their whole hearts. And it was after that after the people had gotten their hearts right with God, that God began to give them victory even in their battles against the Philistines who were attacking them and trying to conquer them. Uh, and they were totally outmatched against the Philistines, but God gave them victory miraculously after they turned to God and committed themselves to him again. So Samuel was truly a great man, one of the greatest men in Israel's history. He was a person who had a heart for God. Everything we read about Samuel in the Bible is great and glorious with one exception. And that's what we read here in the first three chapters of 1 Samuel 8. Here at the beginning of this chapter, we read that Samuel, when he got older, he appointed his sons to be judges over Israel. And you might ask, well, what's wrong with that? Well, here's what's wrong with it. We read in verse 3 that Samuel's sons did not walk in Samuel's ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain. They didn't have a heart for God. They were corrupt. They took bribes. They perverted justice. In other words, Samuel made his sons uh, judges over Israel as a kind of nepotism, right? But they weren't called, and they weren't qualified, and they weren't godly. They didn't have the godly character that they needed to fill this position. So Samuel is this great man of God who has a great heart for God. He has a passion for God, and he's used by God in great ways. But look at how sad this picture is in the end. Towards the end of his life, his own children don't walk in his footsteps. They don't follow in his ways. What a sad thing. Because Samuel has this great legacy in Israel as a leader of Israel. But in his home, he doesn't have a good legacy. You know, Samuel had kind of a rags-to-riches story, you know, like the ones that we read about a lot in, in the newspapers and TV and things like this. I mean, Samuel's a man who came from nothing. Uh, he left home as a young child. He was separated from his family, and he served the Lord for many years. And then he was called to be a prophet. Now here he is, the leader of the whole nation, right? Rags-to-riches. And not only that, but he's a great man who turns the heart of the people back to the Lord. What a great legacy, except when it came to his family. His sons didn't walk in his ways. What a sad thing when that happens. Now, how does something like that happen? How can such a great man fail to leave a great legacy at home? Well, I can't help but notice this, and I, I'm not saying this is definitely what it is, but I can't help but point it out. In chapter 7, if you'll turn there with me, it just the last few verses of the previous chapter, it says this from verse 15. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he went year to year on a circuit to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah, and judged Israel in all those places. But he always returned to Ramah, for his home was there. Then he judged Israel, and he built an altar to the Lord. 
So this is how Samuel lived for many years. He, he did this circuit. He traveled from town to town. He was gone all the time. He was serving the Lord. He was doing good things, ministering to the people, but he sure wasn't at home very much at all. And I can't help but wonder how much of a toll this took on Samuel's family. Yeah, he was doing great things, he was doing good things, but he wasn't there to tend to his family and teach his family. And I can't help but wonder how much his absence factored into his sons growing up and not walking in his ways. And what a sad thing, what a heartbreaking thing for a man like Samuel later in life to look around and realize that he's been successful at his job. He's even been successful in his ministry, but he's failed to raise up children who walk in his ways and who share his values and who know the Lord like he knows the Lord. You know, parents, I just speak to you and say, don't miss this. Don't miss this. Those kids that God has put in your care. If you want to be used by God to change the world with the gospel, start with those little short people in your house, right? Husbands, your wife, your kids, that is your ministry. That is your number one calling that God has called you to, to tend to them and to lead them in God's ways and be faithful in that. Make that your goal to have that kind of legacy. Don't fall into the same trap that Samuel did. Who's a, he was a hero outside of the house. He was a great leader to everybody, but he wasn't a hero and a great leader for his own family. And what a sober warning that should be for us as parents, as husbands, and here's one thing that's interesting to me, and remember the theme of the chapter, right? The theme of the chapter is just like everybody else. So here's Samuel, who has this great heart for God. He doesn't want to be just like everybody else. He doesn't want to have the same story. He doesn't want to just fall into the same patterns and ruts of other people. He doesn't want to just go with the flow and do what everybody else is doing and live like everybody else is living. He wants to have a better story. He wants to live for God. He's the guy who says, I have one life to live and I wanna spend it all for Jesus, for the Lord. He casts himself head first into ministry. I can relate to that. Maybe, maybe some of you can too. You're the person who says, I'm not gonna hold anything back. I wanna be sold out. I wanna give it all. I wanna serve. I, I wanna just be spent for the Lord. But look at this. Samuel didn't want to be like anybody, everybody else, but in the end, he ends up just like many other people. He ends up being that way even though he didn't want to be, right? He ends up in precisely the same situation as Eli. Do you remember Eli? We talked about him in the beginning of this book. He was the high priest when Samuel was growing up as a child in the temple. And Eli also was a good godly man who, who knew the Lord and who ministered to the people on behalf of the Lord. But Eli's sons, they grow up and they don't walk with the Lord. They don't walk in their dad's footsteps. They end up being these godless men, it tells us, who didn't know the Lord, who were corrupt and ripped people off and did all kinds of terrible things, even right there in the temple. They were men who had no business being priests, but like, uh, but like Samuel, Eli also, like many parents, had a blind spot for his kids. And so, so many years later, Samuel looks around and he realizes that although he wanted to be different, he never wanted to end up like Eli. He wanted to be sold out. He wanted to have a better story. Now he looks around and realizes that unintentionally and unfortunately, he has actually become just like everybody else. And he's not the only one. There's a number of people like this in the Bible who are greatly used by God, but they neglect their own family. Moses, you know, this great leader, this iconic person, and he forgot to circumcise his own children, right? This thing which was so important to God. Even David will see that some of his kids don't follow in his footsteps. And so Samuel 
never wanted this, but he looks around now in his life and he realizes that actually he, is, he has become just like everybody else. A hero outside of the house, but not a hero in, the, in his own home. And just like Eli, Samuel has a blind spot for his kids and he appoints his sons to be the new leaders over the people so that he can retire. That's the same move that Eli made, remember? Eli appointed his ungodly sons to be priests and now Samuel's doing the exact same thing, making his ungodly sons judges. And here's my point. Even if you don't want it to happen, this is a default that we default back to this. It's part of our human nature. We default to being just like everybody else. The question though, and the pressing question is, how do we avoid that from happening? How, how can we avoid that happening to us? In Romans chapter 12, God's word gives us these instructions. It says, do not be conformed to this world. Do not be conformed to this world. Don't be like everybody else, but be transformed in the renewing of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. In Greek, that word transform, that is in the continuous tense. And what that means is it's saying be continually transformed by God. It means continually seeking God, studying his word, coming before him in prayer. And as you do those things, you are being continually transformed. You're being continually renewed. And God will make his will clear to you as you do those things. It's as you do those things, as you seek God in the pages of this book, as you seek him in prayer, that God reveals to you, Samuel, you're doing a great job leading the nation but you're neglecting your family. I've called you to be different, Samuel. I've called you to be different in your home too. And you, you need to go and lead your family. It's as you're seeking the Lord that he reveals this to you. It's those times as you're seeking the Lord as he renews your mind and transforms you and changes you and that he keeps you from defaulting into just conforming to this world and becoming just like everybody else. So I wanna encourage you, don't be conformed to this world. And the way to do that is to be transformed continuously by the renewing of your mind, by seeking the Lord continually, coming to him in prayer and in the pages of this book. And as you do that, he will make clear to you what is his will for you, which is good and acceptable and perfect. So not only do we see the default, but we also see the desire, the desire to be just like everybody else. Let's continue reading from verse 4. Then all the elders of Israel gathered at Ramah. Oh, they gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Look, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. So here's Samuel, and uh, he tries to appoint his sons to be judges over the people. The elders of Israel, though, they call a meeting. They say, you know what? We, we need to get together with you, Samuel. Meet us at Ramah, and we're going to talk. And they basically tell him three things. The first thing they tell him is, you're old, which is, you know, that's a nice way to start a conversation. Number two, uh, we're not going to accept your sons as judges over us. 
That's actually a good thing. This is a good thing that the elders of Israel are doing. They don't have to accept the leadership of men over them who are ungodly and unqualified and not called. So this is a good thing that they stand up to Samuel and they put their foot down. This is what didn't happen with Eli, if you remember. They're telling him, Samuel, we love you. You've been good to us, but look, you have a blind spot for your kids. They have no business being priests over us, or I'm sorry, judges over us, and we're going to put our foot down and say no on this one. So this is a good thing that the elders do. And while it was very good and wise for them to do this and say this to Samuel, the next thing they say is, is very wrong. Look at it. Number three, the third thing they say to him is, now appoint for us a judge, or I'm sorry, a king. Appoint for us a king to judge us like all the other nations. They're saying we, we don't want judges anymore. We don't want God to just give us a judge every now and then anymore. We want a king. Now I must say this, that the desire of the people of Israel to have a king, I don't believe that this was a bad desire. I don't believe it was a, a wrong desire. In fact, I believe that this was part of God's plan for Israel to give them a king at the right time. Because way back in the book of Deuteronomy, which is written 400 years before the events that are happening here in this book, uh, God had declared that one day Israel was going to have a king. And there in Deuteronomy, he gives regulations 400 years ago for how this king should be. Guidelines for what the king of Israel should be like, what his character should be like, what he should do, what he shouldn't do. There are guidelines. And, and so it, it, I believe it was always within the heart of God and the plan of God to one day give Israel a king, to raise up a king for them. Right now, though, Israel is suffering under two problems. Two problems. Number one, they are getting ahead of God. They're getting ahead of God. And let me tell you this. God's timing is just as important as God's will for your life. God's timing for those things is just as important. There might be something that is totally, absolutely God's will for your life, but not right now, right? Not yet. It's not time for that yet. It was obviously part of God's plan for Israel. It was part of his heart and his desire for Israel that they would one day have a king, but not yet. It wasn't the right time. And secondly, the other problem they're suffering under is, obviously here, this is the main thing, their basic motivation in wanting a king is so skewed, it's so off. Notice what they say, appoint us a king to judge us, to rule over us, like all the other nations. In other words, they're saying, well, the Amorites have a king, and the Egyptians have a king, and the Assyrians have a king. We want a king too, you know, kind of like a little kid who wants a toy. Like, Jimmy has the toy, and Billy has the toy. Now I want it too, right? Well, let me tell you, that's not a very good reason for wanting a king. But this is the reason that was on the Israelites' heart. They wanted to be just like the nations around them. They wanted to be just like everybody else. But let me tell you this. This is a very low vision of what God has called Israel to be. When God called Israel, he never said, here is my goal with you. Here's my purpose and my vision and my calling for you. Here's why I'm calling you out of darkness and into light. Here's why I'm calling you into being as a nation. So you can be just like everybody else, you know? And uh, I, don't want you to, I don't want you to be any different. I want you to fit in. I don't want you to make any waves. Just blend in. Try not to let anybody notice you, right? No, God had a much higher calling for Israel. He said, I want you to be a chosen nation, a holy people. I want you to be a beacon to the nations that shines my light, a people among whom my will is done and the things that I care about are cared about among you. I want you to be a people who are different. 
a people who know me, a people who are brought out of darkness and brought into the light. I want you to be people who walk in the light and a people through whom I can carry out my mission in the world and accomplish my goals. I want you to be different. That's the whole idea. And you know that God would say the same thing to you and me today as well. God has a higher calling for your life than that you would just simply become like everybody else. I think a lot of people miss out. They get ripped off from all that God wants for their life because they're trying hard to fit in and be like everybody else around them. Rather than pursuing how God wants them to be unique as a follower of Jesus Christ in every area of their life, right? from relationships to family to finances. Rather than pursuing how God wants us to be unique, they're just trying to fit in with what everybody else is doing. Keep up with the neighbors, right? You see, the problem here isn't that Israel wanted a king. The problem here is that they wanted a king for the wrong reasons. I wonder if you ever have that in your life, do you? You want something and it's a good thing you want, but the reason you want it is wrong, it's messed up. Let's continue reading from verse 6. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord. Now there are probably three things that displeased Samuel about what they said. Uh, number one, they, he probably didn't like it that they said he was old. I mean, he knew he was old, but it never feels good when somebody points those kind of things out. Uh, number two, they said, Your sons are not going to lead us. I think it was difficult for Samuel to face the facts and accept this truth about his sons. And number three, I think Samuel was disturbed because he saw why they wanted a king. He saw that their motivation was wrong. But I love what Samuel does here. He's displeased, he's hurt, he's offended, he's disturbed by what these guys say to him, but look at what he does. He turns to the Lord in prayer. Now I don't know what your week was like this week. Maybe something happened that displeased you. Uh, something that hurt you or caused you anxiety or distress. God never wants you to carry those things, that kind of trouble, on your own. He never wants you to carry those things with you. You need to do what Samuel did and pray to the Lord. You know that God's word says, First Peter, it says, cast all your cares upon him because he cares for you. You know, not everything in your life is going to go as you hoped it would. You're going to be faced with difficulties, and struggles and disappointments and you need to take those things to the Lord in prayer like Samuel did because if you don't if you do what other people do what a lot of even us do right it's just if you just bottle it up if you hold it inside if you carry it alone you know what happens it becomes like an acid within you it just eats away at your soul from the inside out and it comes out at other people and oftentimes at the people who are closest to you and you get short with them and you get nasty and you bark at them but instead, look at this other way to do it, right? Do it the way Samuel did it. Follow his example. Take what's displeasing you, what's disturbing you, and pour it out before the Lord. Take what's bothering you and cry out to God with it. Let him carry your burden. He's stronger than you. He can handle it even if you can't. Let's continue on from verse 7. And the Lord said to Samuel, Heed the voice of the people in all that they say. To you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, that I should reign over them. According to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, with which they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing now to you also. 
God's telling Samuel, Samuel, don't take this personally. This isn't about you. It's not about them rejecting you. It's about them rejecting me. You know, it's really easy for people who are involved in ministry, people who are involved in leadership, to take this kind of rejection personally. When, in, like in this case with Samuel, they really shouldn't. Um, God is ministering to Samuel's hurting heart. He's dealing with this sense of rejection. And God's telling him, Samuel, you think this is about you? This is not really about you ultimately. This is about me. This is between me and them. And let me tell you what, I can handle it. I've been being rejected by these people since the Garden of Eden. Let me carry this burden. And, uh, you know, I mean, this is in a way prophetic. They're, they're saying, we don't want God to rule over us. We don't want you to be king. This is prophetic in a way because the same thing will happen many years later in Jerusalem. Do you remember this crowd standing there and saying, we will not have this man rule over us. Crucify him. And Pontius Pilate says, why should I crucify him? He's one of you. He's a Jew. Shall I crucify your king? And they say, we will not have this man rule over us. You know, God's story throughout the Bible is a story of rejection. He can handle it. And when you're dealing with rejection, I would encourage you, look at this and look at how God wants to take this sense of rejection. He wants to carry it for Samuel. He says, let me carry it. I can handle it. I've been dealing with this for a long time. Verse 9. According to all the works which they have done. Oh, I'm sorry, verse 9. Now therefore heed their voice. However, you shall solemnly forewarn them and show them the behavior of the king who will rule over them. God says, look, if they want a king, then I will give them their king. I have a king that I'm planning to give them one day, but, but if they want their king, then I'll give them their king. They can have it. But I want you to tell them, I want you to tell them, full disclosure, right? Like when you buy a house or buy a car, this is the whole contract, right? This is what's going to happen. It's not all it's cracked up to be. There's a lot that comes along with it. And here's the full disclosure, verse 10. So Samuel told them all the words of the Lord to the people who asked him for a king. And he said, this will be the behavior of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for his own chariots to be his horsemen. And some will run before his chariots. He will appoint captains over his thousands and captains over his fifties. He will set some to plow his ground and reap his harvest and make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers, cooks, and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and your vineyards and your olive groves, and he will give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your grain and your vintage and give it to his officers and servants. He will take your male servants, your female servants, your finest young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take a tenth of your sheep and you will be his servants. Samuel warns the people, this is the full disclosure, right? You, you want to be like all those other nations? Well, this is what it comes with. You don't realize this right now. All you can see is the glory of having the image of a king. But this is what kingdoms really like. You want a king? Well, this is what kings do. Kings take. This is what all the kings of this world do. They take. He says, I know you, wanna, you think you want to be like everybody else, but you don't realize what it all comes with, all the extra baggage that it comes with. There are a lot of things that you don't have to deal with now that you're going to have to deal with if you get a king. So I'm going to tell you up front what to expect so that you can never say I didn't warn you. You see, when we look at this, we can't look at the elders of Israel and think that they were stupid or that they were dumb and that they were childish, wanting a king. What they're doing here is they're looking over their nation and they're seeing problems and they need solutions. That's their job. 
They say, look, we've got national security issues. We're being attacked by the Philistines. We've got social problems. We've got economic problems. We, know, we need some solutions. And I know what the solution is, they say. We need a king. So it wasn't that they were stupid, but what we see here in this disclosure here is that they fell into a trap that a lot of us fall into uh, when we're trying to solve problems and make decisions. There's this thing called the law of unintended consequences, right? The law of unintended consequences. What that means is that whenever you try to fix a problem with a solution, the solution actually causes new problems, right? I mean, this is just a fact of life. Uh, new problems which you never had before. And so, yes, you effectively solved one problem. That's great, but now you have a bunch of new problems that your solution created. And sometimes those problems are even bigger problems than the problem which you solved with the solution, right? Uh, and so what we need to do when we're faced with problems as mature people, right, what we do is we weigh the possible situations. We weigh the good and the bad and we ask for guidance and we wait on the Lord and finally we step out in faith because there is no perfect solution. Every solution brings with it new problems of its own. But that's what Israel's not doing here. They're not waiting on the Lord. They're not taking his advice. God's trying to tell them, this is not going to be as good as you think it will be. There are going to be a lot of unintended consequences if you want to be like everybody else. And that is so often the case that when we try to be just like everybody else rather than embracing the uniqueness of who God's called us to be in Christ, called us to be set apart from the world, there are a ton of unintended consequences. So Samuel gives them this full disclosure. He says, this is what it's going to be like if you want a king just like all the other kings out there. And they take. He says it six or seven times in those few verses. Kings take. That's what they do. That's what they're all about. The kings of this world are takers. They're not givers. And you think it's going to be cool and you think it's going to be fun to be just like everybody else. But here's what I'm going to tell you. It will take from you and take from you. And ultimately you will become its servant. Now, are you sure this is what you want? Verse 18. And you will cry out in that day because your king, whom you chose for yourselves, and the Lord will not hear you in that day. Notice God refers to him as your king. He says, this is your king. This is the guy you chose for yourselves. God's making it clear. This is what you want for yourselves. This is not what I want for you. This is what you want for yourselves. And if you think you know better, then I'll let you find out what it's like. This is a really uh, an issue of timing. I believe that God had chosen a king for Israel. I believe that his name was David and that he was the man after God's own heart. But at this point, David hasn't been born yet. You know, David, if he has been born, he's, he's a small child uh, and it's not yet time. And it's as if God is saying, look, guys, if you will wait, I will raise up my king for you. Like I promised to do 400 years ago, a good king, a king after my heart. If you'll wait for my timing, I will give you the best. But if you insist, then I'll give you what you want. I'll give you your king so you can be just like everybody else. But I'm telling you right now, it's going to be way harder than you think. So what do you think the people are going to do? What do you think they're going to be like, uh, yes, Lord, okay, we get it. We understood. We really want your king. Don't give us our king. We don't want that. We want what's best for us, and we trust that you know what's best for us, and we're going to wait for you to give us what's good in the right time. Is that what they do? Well, let's read from verse 19. Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, no, we will have a king over us. They said, yada, 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 whatever, blah, blah, blah. 
king. We already made up our minds. Stop trying to confuse us with facts we already decided. Verse 20, that we may be like all the other nations and that our kings may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And Samuel heard the words of the people and repeated them in the heart, uh, hearing of the Lord. So the Lord said to Samuel, heed their voice, make them a king. And Samuel said to the men of Israel, every man go to his city. So what are their reasons again? Number one, their reason is we want to be like everybody else. You know, I don't care if it's right. I don't care if it's wrong. Everybody else has one, so I want one too. I'm telling you, friends, God's vision for your life is so much bigger, so much greater than that you would simply be just like everybody else. Don't get ripped off from all the rich things that God has from you from, because of that kind of thinking. And number two, they say, so that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Now, wait a second. They want a king who will fight their battles? Well, just wait a second. Up until this point, isn't that the whole story of the history of Israel? That God goes before them and fights their battles? That God's been doing that for centuries, right? You remember Jericho? Do you remember the Midianites in the days of Gideon? God goes out and fights their battles for them. Every time they humble themselves and give themselves over to the Lord, God gives them victory. As a matter of fact, in the previous chapter, just in chapter 7, that's exactly what happened. Remember with the Philistines, they were outmatched, but yet God gave them victory. He caused this great disturbance, and they were able to defeat the Philistines. What's wrong with these people? Are they blind? Do they not see that the very thing that they want, they already have? Why are they rejecting God as king, the one who fights battles for them in favor of an earthly king who they think will fight battles for them? You see, this is where the real issue finally comes out. The real issue here isn't that Israel wanted a king. Uh, they, they had a king. The, the Lord God was their king. You know what they wanted? They wanted an image. This is what they wanted. They wanted an image. They wanted the royal image. They wanted all the trappings, right? They wanted a throne. They wanted to put a crown on him. They wanted to make a palace and all these things. God, the one thing God wouldn't give them, he did everything for them that a good king would do. He fought their battles. He led them. He blessed them. There's one thing he wouldn't do for them. He would not give them an image of a king. And that's what they didn't like. They, they had a king. God enthroned in heaven. He did everything for them that a good king would. And on top of everything, where the kings of this earth are takers, the Lord God was a giver. He gave them everything. He was a giving king. But you know what he wouldn't give them? The image of a king. And that's what they wanted. They wanted a royal image so that they could project that to the nations. God says to them, if that's what you want, then I'll give it to you. I'll give you a king who looks like a king. He'll be like a male model. He'll be like tall and handsome and good looking and he will be a great image for your nation, right? You can put him on all your brochures. He will be awesome, but he will not have the heart of a king. Later on, God would raise up an unlikely man to be king. His name was David. And David would not look like a king, at least not at first. He wouldn't have the image, but he would have the heart. He will have a heart for God. And on this topic, just to wrap this up, on this topic of being just like everybody else, you know what Jesus said? He said, enter through the narrow gate. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are many, but the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. 
Enter through the narrow gate. You know what's interesting? Later on, Jesus would say, I am the gate. He said, I am the gate. Anyone who enters through me will be saved. Enter through the narrow gate. Jesus is that gate. All of us, I believe, it's part of our human nature. We struggle with this default and this desire to be just like everybody else. But I'm here to tell you today and remind you that God has a higher calling and a bigger vision for your life than that you would simply just be like everybody else. He's called you to be different. He's called you to stand out and shine like a light in the world for him so that people might see what it looks like to be redeemed, so that people might see how the new life that God infuses you with through Jesus Christ works its way out practically, what it looks like to live under his rule and reign of a true king. The word of God for us today is this. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Amen? Let's stand and pray. Lord, we thank you that you've called us to be different. We thank you that you've called us out of this world, Lord. We are in this world, but you don't want us to be of it. You don't want us to just fit in and, and be just going with the flow of culture. Lord, help us to see all the ways and explore all those ways and learn them and live them out. Lord, that you've called us to be different, that you've called us to be redeemed and set apart. Lord, may we be different in the way that we live our family lives as followers of Jesus, as people who've been born again. Lord, may we be different in the way that we have relationships. We may be different in the way that we spend money and spend time. Lord, in every aspect of our lives, Lord, would you shape us and show us what it looks like to be different for you, to be redeemed in that area. And Lord, I want to pray specifically for anyone here today who has not yet receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, who's not yet received the blood of Jesus as the covering for their sins and the body of Jesus Christ broken for them for their forgiveness. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone like that among us here today, Lord, that you would work in their heart now as we take communion, this outward symbol that we are receiving the death of Jesus Christ for us on the cross. And we are receiving new life through Jesus. Lord, I pray that no one would leave here today without having received new life in Jesus. Lord, as we take this cup and as we take this bread, Lord, in remembrance of you, Lord, let us do it as a, as a symbol and as a statement, Lord, that we receive this from you. We receive your body broken from us. We receive your blood shed for us for the forgiveness of our sins, for the new life through you. I pray that in Jesus' name, amen.